Hello, folks. Welcome to Notoriously Episcopalian, a podcast of sermons from me, Kelly Hudlow, an itinerant Episcopal priest in Alabama. Thanks for listening. This is a sermon for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, July 24, 2022, offered at the Episcopal Church of the Messiah in Heflin, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 19. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I am not much of a gardener. I joke sometimes when I talk about when I bought my house in Birmingham, which had some beautiful gardens in it, what I have basically done for like the past six or seven years is to just try not to kill the things that were already there when I bought the house. Um, And I've had some mixed success. We've had a drought or two in Birmingham. There were some azalea bushes that didn't quite make it, but largely a lot of the garden that I inherited when I bought the house is still intact. Part of these plantings include three crepe myrtle trees that are at the front of the house. And I will confess, I have mixed opinions about crepe myrtles, but they do work rather nice in a city because they grow tall pretty quickly. They put off some shade. So on a a city street where the bigger trees have been either lost to time or construction, crepe myrtles are a nice way to bring some greenery in. So on the street that I live on, 7th Avenue, many of our neighbors have crepe myrtles in front of the house, and so it makes sort of a nice kind of avenue feel. And the crepe myrtles largely don't need a lot of tending to. You have to trim them back every now and again. There are some people that insist on committing crepe murder each year, which I'm told is not necessarily the best thing to do for the trees to cut them back that much every year, but generally, Me and the crepe myrtles got along until last year. Last year is the year that I had to learn about aphids and what aphids can do to crepe myrtles. Aphids are small, almost indetectable little bugs that apparently once they move into an environment that has crepe myrtles will move from tree to tree. Now, aphids are just doing what aphids are supposed to do, which is eating and making more aphids and and just being the life of the bug. And they don't actually harm the crepe myrtles that much. Crepe myrtles won't die from aphids. But what does happen is aphids produce sort of a sticky waste product that then makes the crepe myrtles themselves get this sort of black sooty mold and everything that is underneath the crepe myrtles is also affected by this kind of sticky black soot that falls from the aphids. So as aphids arrived on 7th Avenue, my neighbors and I had different responses. There was one neighbor who didn't just have mixed opinion about crepe myrtles. He actually didn't like his crepe myrtles, so he just cut them down. And then there were some other neighbors that committed crepe murder a little early, thinking that if they prune them back, pretty severely earlier in the spring that perhaps that will get the aphids to move along. Myself and my neighbors took on what I thought was the rather ridiculous task of washing the trees and then applying oil to them that was supposed to get rid of the aphids. It didn't work. 
And so we moved on to spraying things on the leaves and the, and the trunks of the trees to try to get rid of the aphids, which still didn't work. And then finally, towards the end of last summer, we bought some things that required treating the roots of the tree. And so we mixed up this concoction in these five-gallon buckets, and we would pour them, pour it slowly around the base of the tree. We did it after at a time when there hadn't been a lot of rain, so the roots were ready to grab whatever moisture we were putting into the soil. And since it was the end of the summer, it was like, well, we're going to see if this helps protect the trees for next spring before we make the decision on whether or not they have to be cut down. Immediately, there was no real detectable difference. Winter came, the crepe myrtles dropped their leaves. Um, then, as early spring came, the crepe myrtles shed their bark the way that they do, which is sort of messy, which is why I'm indifferent about crepe myrtles. And we looked down, up and down the street, and our neighbors, the aphids, came back. You started seeing sort of the telltale little white movements on the trunk, and then you start seeing sort of the black sootiness that was there. But our crepe myrtles didn't have them. We had managed to sort of get to the source of the problem and give the crepe myrtle what it needed to pull up through its roots to protect itself from the aphids that were still on the street, still causing chaos in the crepe myrtle environment. But our crepe myrtles bloomed their flowers and grew a little taller and at some point probably will have to be pruned back, but have not been affected by this same sickness as the rest of the trees on the street. I say all this because our writer in the letter to the Colossians is talking about what it means to be a Christian in a world where there are lots of things that are ready to sort of draw on you and use you for their own purposes. And this part of the letter to the Colossians, the, the issue, right, the, what the problem in the community is, does eventually kind of come um, into more focus, right? So Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and, and he is talking about sort of the life and faith and he's talking about the importance of, of your baptism. And then he also goes on and says, you know, those that are around you, right, say that, that you're not eating the right things, you're not drinking the right things, you're not going to the right festivals, you're not doing all of these things that are supposed to sort of limit your body so that you can have these mystical visions and experiences. And so what begins to come into focus in this part of the letter is that what Paul is writing against is a philosophy and understanding of dualism that says that the body in the created world is bad and we need to deny that and we need to, to look to the heavens and to these smaller elemental deities and, and fast and do these things because what we are supposed to have are these mystical sort of transcendental experiences of the divine. And the writer of the letter says, no. What you as Christians are called to do is to continue to live your lives in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ. 
It is that same Christ that we heard about in last Sunday's reading, right? In the hymn that this church would have sung when it gathered to worship that described a Christ that held all of creation in his arms, drawing us further into the heart of God. It is this Christ that alone saves us, and not just us, but redeems all of creation. And that all of creation, trees and planets and us, reveal God and God's work in the world. So we don't have to go to these extraordinary means to separate ourselves from the created world, but what we do have to do is to look to the created world and see and experience Christ in it. Now sometimes when we think about being rooted, we think about being stuck, right? Trees don't walk around necessarily. Plants don't get up and walk around. Sometimes when we think about being rooted, we might think about something stale or stagnant. But Paul here writes that we're to live a life rooted in Christ. And the word here, live, actually means walk around, right? The life of a Christian is a life of walking around rooted in Christ. And so if we want to know what that might look like, stop and think about what we've heard from the Gospel of Luke for the past three Sundays. We started off the month reading from Luke, Jesus' sending out of his disciples two by two to go around the countryside proclaiming the good news and declaring that God's peace and God's kingdom had come near. And then we hear in the parable of the Good Samaritan that being rooted in Christ means loving God, loving ourselves, and loving our neighbor. And we learn from the parable that loving your neighbor means being a neighbor, and to be a neighbor to someone means doing mercy. And then we hear the story of Martha and Mary, right? And in that moment, we realize that part of the being rooted in a life of faith, rooted in Christ, isn't always about the busyness of sending or the busyness of doing, but is also about resting in the presence of Christ. And so this morning in the gospel, we hear that living a life rooted in Christ also means a life of prayer. And it means praying to God, not as an angry God that needs to somehow be satisfied by how we can come meek and mild on our knees begging, but it means praying to God as God as Father. That a God, praying to God as a God that is love and insists on love and a God that loves us so much that of course God will give us what we ask for. We pray to this God, God the Father, not because we believe that we can somehow be annoying enough to get what we want or that we can form a, a compelling enough argument to get what we want, but we pray to this God that just like if a child asks their parent, give me something to eat, the child trusts that the parent is going to do it because the parent wants good for the child. We pray to God the Father knowing that we will receive from God God what we need and what we ask because God is good and God is gracious 
God is not the God of poison or trickery, but the God of blessing and abundance. It is this God, right, that feeds us every day, that forgives us shamelessly. We don't always make God look very good, but God is going to make us look good, and God is going to do good for us in spite of what we might do in this world. So being rooted in Christ isn't about being stuck. It isn't about doing things the way that we always have done it, right? But being rooted in Christ is a life of being sent to share the good news. It is a life of doing mercy. It is a life of resting in the presence of Christ and being fed in the presence of Christ. And it is a life of praying, trusting in God's goodness to give us what we need. That is what Paul means when he writes to the Colossians, surrounded in sort of this crazy mixed up world, not too terribly different from ours, where there are all sorts of quick fixes and self-help and this is how you should do things if you want to feel better and do better and get what you want in life. In that sort of world, Paul writes, be rooted in Christ. Our roots don't hold us back, right? They don't hold the tree back. Our roots keep us balanced. Our roots make us grow. Our roots are the way that we can be fed and nourished, right? And when we are fed and nourished and grow, that means that we in our lives can become places of rest and protection for our neighbors. We can be places of flowering and bearing fruit. It is being rooted that lets that Christ that holds the universe in his arms flow through our whole lives. And it is that rootedness that Paul reminds us that we should be abounding in thanksgiving for. Amen.